The God of Mischief is back and better than ever. Loki. 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 Wow. Great to see you again. Critics agree. Loki season two is marvelous. Great. And it's finally here. How much do you know? Let's assume I don't know much. A mind-bending adventure. Spectacularly cinematic. I've been waiting for a moment like this. It surpasses all expectations. A little over the top, don't you think? I thought it was spot on. Loki Season 2. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. You are listening to Habs and Minded. Brought to you by HabsEyesOnThePrize.com. All right. Hello, 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 everyone. This is Patrick Bexel, and I'm joined today by one of my favorite guests, Jason Paul Bad from a new country. We're live from Kenya. Live from Kenya. For everyone everyone that doesn't know, it's in Africa. (laughs) It's near the horn in Africa. So so be sure about that. Love love coming on the pod with you. And uh, yeah, and, and down here in Kenya, I get like no blackouts on nhl.com so it's uh, very nice oh i can imagine that but but i mean doesn't that affect you know the the life of you know suburban father and and uh, you know safari rides and stuff it's a little bit different you know when the cat gets outside uh, or the dog you worry if it doesn't come back you know if a monkey has got him or something like that so yeah it's a, <laughs> it's an or interesting snake, right? change or a snake yeah Yep, there's, we're kind of getting used to that. We found a black snake in our uh, laundry room the other day. So, and we don't know if this stuff's poison or what. So, you know, you call in somebody else and they do it and they kind of laugh at you. But yeah, we're, we're adjusting. We're adjusting. <laughs> what a life. What a life. Uh, fantastic. And it's fantastic because for me, it's, it's, it's a decent hour that we get the chance to do this. And it's not the weekend either. So, so it's brilliant. I know, uh, fantastic. When we have Jason on, it's obviously the fact that we're going to speak about the Montreal Canadiens defense. <laughs> we haven't seen much. It's been two games, three games, three games so far. But have you been able to draw any conclusions from, from these three games? Uh, Maybe a little bit. I think so, for sure. I mean, it depends. I don't watch the games to these exhibition games to see if their their impact is uh, on the game is incredible. I kind of you look for different things. I'm not a scout, um, and I definitely don't really watch too many minor league games. So I really start to follow them as soon as they hit the uh, NHL. Uh, so I didn't I haven't really watched too much of uh, Norlander, for example, like you have. And uh, yeah, I just. I kind of try to see if there's going to be, you know, talent enough there to, uh, for the Habs to, um, you know, develop them and, and get them in the lineup. I, when I saw Norlander and Gooley, I was really impressed. I just think they have tools there on the other, on both sides of the spectrum that uh, the Habs can be happy that they have in the pipeline right now. Yeah, they're, they're two very different players. They, they play defense. That's about the same thing they do, really. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but but let's start with with Gouli. You know, nineteen year old. Uh, it, it is as you mentioned. He is the guy that they really really wanted. And you have to think back to the draft. Did they take him for as a uh, Shea Weber replacement? And Weber had to, re- like, we, we assume that he won't play, but, but had to retire early. 
uh, or at least not uh, not retire officially early <laughs> and go on limited reserve. But but I mean, Gouli is that kind of similar similar kind of player from what we've seen so far. Yeah, and I think for me, when I watched the couple of exhibition games there, he um, that's what stood out most. It's like this is the kind of player that the Habs want, and you know that they're going to keep pushing. You go back to Commissaric, for example. Um, again, maybe that wasn't the exact kind of player they wanted at the time, but clearly they invested in him. And if you remember Commissaric, I think he was a great talent, but at the same time, maybe not that level that they were giving him. Um, and kind of when he when he left Markov's side, he, his game kind of went to the wayside. So all that to say, I just I just look at that package and I look I, I really liked his gap control. I liked his physical uh, play in front of the net. I sound like Bergevin when I say this, you know, but I think the key here is that they've got a player that clearly they're going to groom into that role. The whole, the whole design of the Montreal Canadiens is maybe defense is something that, you know, uh, stats people online or advanced stats people or maybe even the modern hockey fan just can't get behind because the modern hockey is about defense or offense from the defense right you hear that cliche you see Kale McCarr you see Roman Yossi and everybody wants that player and everybody wants a team that plays that style um but the Habs just that's not how they play and that's not how they want to play so all these fans that want to see them trade for a, a first line puck moving player defenseman that's just not how they that's just not how they're going to make the team the way they with the assets they have now. If they could draft the Kale McCarr, maybe they would switch, but for now they're just, it's not available. So they're gonna go with the top four that is defensive minded first. Um, I have obviously watched, as you mentioned, Norlinder quite a bit. And, and I'm from what I've taken away from these two games is, is where, where he's been part of, it's more the fact that he has played a more secure game than he does in, in Frölunda in the SHL, where he's key to, to maybe run a little bit of offense, not only on the power play, but also in, on five-on-five five situations. Here, he's taken a little bit step back and, and make sure that he has his guy, that he, he controls the gap a little bit better. Uh, it has, he hasn't, which has meant that he hasn't really stood out for, for the reasons that or what we expected to. But on the other hand, I also expected him to, to stand out for some of the defensive lapses that I know he can have. And that hasn't shown a lot either. So, so for me, it's been a more mature, maybe Matthias Norlinder than I expected to. Do you agree with that assessment or, or how have you seen him? Yeah. Well, I mean, you have way more experience uh, with his game than I do. So I've, I've really only started watching him as a just that last few games and uh yeah i mean clearly this is what they're probably asking him to do right i mean the nhl is a different beast like when people see uh you know um all these offensive defenseman stats if you actually take away the power play stats their five on five stats are not that impressive most of them you know unless you're talking about uh petrangelo and and um carlson in his prime headmen you know what i mean like there are yeah. very few that can dominate dominate so uh i think it would be a success when he starts to break into the nhl that he become basically a zero five on five player or like 
zero impact five on five player, but have impact on a specialty team on a power play. That to me, that would be a success. And going back to how the Habs are built right now, which is the top four takes the takes the brunt of the D. They're only asking the the last two defensemen, the last pair to survive five on five. And hopefully they have someone like Norlander in there or Romanov or somebody else that can make an impact on the power play. It's clear that that's the, that is the structure they want when they went out and got um, Gustafsson, for example. Yeah. They keep trying to swing at these guys that can survive at the bottom of the, the lineup on the, on the uh, defensive side, but they can slot in on the power play. A little bit like uh, Wiedemann as well, which we have seen, and, and he played very well against Toronto the other night. And so, so there is these, you can see a role differential as well. You mentioned Romanov, and, and that's obviously why I brought you here, because, you know, a, a year ago I said it's going to be a success story. It hasn't really been <laughs> that kind of success story, but, but yeah. Uh, but I also, I think that he was asked to play a role that he wasn't comfortable with. In Seska, he had been held back he had been playing defensively, very secure, whereas Montreal seemed to have favor the approach where he played in, in the World Union Championships, where he was the driver of the offense, where he um, was the power play guy, etc. And he can do that against his peer. But as you say, it's also a big step up for, from, from even from arguably the best team outside NHL to, to the NHL. And... Um, it seems now that over the preseason, we've seen Romanov being paired with, with Petrie, which is a pairing I really like even for, for the NHL if he plays the Seska way. The question is, will fans also think that is a success or are they still high on that World Union Championship, Romanov? Yeah, I, I, it's hard to say. I still think they're going to go with uh, the big top four. And I, I don't think you're going to see my person. I don't think you're going to see Romanov in the top four, at least to start the season. And he's going to be asked to do what he was last year. This is my prediction, which is again, to survive on the bottom pair and, and try to make an impact. Um, I would, and I've argued this quite a bit, the way the Montreal Canadians are structured with, with the defensive first heavy with the Deneau, the way they were last year, they, they have half the team, basically muting the other team's offensive threats and then they're asking for the bottom of the lineup to make an impact against the bottom of the lineup for the other team right and and really that's what hockey is like it, it's it's not your best players beating the other players the other team's best players it's getting some sort of advantage somewhere in the lineup in the matchup well Toronto is building it's building it the other way right they're building the top exactly and and, and trying yeah. to ask their their defense or, or the bottom to just survive Exactly. And, and you could argue that Montreal is built to be the anti-top heavy team, uh, neutralize the top team and then, and then work on the bottom. And I, and I would argue that, you know, Montreal, if you look, I think I, I posted the last 10 games st uh, stats uh, and I see you retweeted it on Twitter. Then, I mean, that was not, I mean, that was, this season was not good at all, but that last 10 games are really bad for the bottom end of the lineup. You saw Merrill was like, one goal for and like 14 against and Gustafsson we don't even talk about him anymore because it's not in the club <laughs> yeah <laughs> and Romanoff unfortunately was paired a lot with with uh Merrill they were trying to get Merrill going I think and, and they kind of made a little bit of a not a mistake but he that you know that part of the lineup did not succeed and I and I often think 
obviously this, this doesn't, I mean, I'd like to be a fly on the wall or, or behind the bench. You know, when you're a guy like Weber and Petrie and they're going out against the Crosbys and they're, even if they're making an even game, and then when the fourth line gets on or the last pair and they allow a goal, that it just seems deflating to me, you know? That's the part of the lineup that has to make an advantage uh, in, my, in my view. And he could really do that in that role. I hope he's, I hope he's uh, paired with Kulak if they do that because he did have really good success with Kulak. So what made it work um, with Kulak and Romanov? I don't know. I think I think maybe uh, it could have been the whole idea where Kulak really brought his game up because he he was paired with the rookie and maybe gave him the confidence to be the driver or the support. Uh, it's hard to say. Like the chemistry thing is such a random, not a random, but like a very difficult thing, and, and it's really important for defensemen, right? Uh, I thought when Kulak and Petrie were paired, people loved that pairing. But at the same time, I, I thought there was, I thought there was uh, sometimes maybe not a good match because Kulak wanted, needed to defer and he wasn't a hundred percent focused on, on how, whereas when he's with Romanov, I feel like he, everything he's doing is determined and deliberate and decisive. So I, I, lo- I like that pair. I'd be super happy if that's the bottom pair. And we, we know that Kulak is going to come back into the team uh, closer towards the, the uh, actual start of the season. We're still in the preseason mode here. And, and obviously, their doubleheader against Ottawa coming up. A very interesting team, Ottawa, with a lot of speed um, in, in, and youth. Uh, I don't think they will challenge that hard for, for a playoff spot, but they will cause a few upsets uh, this season. Yeah, and it goes, and to me, it goes back to, Uh, Montreal, I I think they feel comfortable playing a top-heavy team because the mandate of the game is they know how to play, except when they play a team that plays them that same way <laughs> and makes them need to to drive the pace, I feel like they don't do as well. And that, for me, what when they mean? play the Senators... Buffalo is obviously a top-heavy team, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like... And that's when they play the Senators. That's how I feel when I watched them last year. I was like, they just didn't have their identity, which is in your face, shut down, and then and then counterattack. They just didn't have that against Ottawa. It'll be interesting to see how they do it this year. Were there any other? I mean, like looking at the ten game, ten uh, last games of the of the season, and obviously the playoffs. Which pairing stood out? Obviously, Weber in his own stood out, and and we saw that at the end of this season and. When, when Tampa won that game five and everyone skated to Weber rather than normally you skate yeah. to goalie, but everyone skated, skated to Weber. Weber was, he was the man mountain we sort of expected, but what other players stood out in that playoff? I, I think uh, Ben Sherratt, I think these guys are polarizing the way they play, but like Ben Sherratt, Uh, obviously Petrie and uh, Ed, like the top four Edmondson. I, I would just say that those guys were, they played exactly how obviously the coaching staff asked them to play. And one interesting stat, I know you're, you know, I'm a stats guy. So one of the most interesting stats I found as the uh, playoffs progressed was the reduction of defensemen rushing the pucks, rushing the puck and making um, uh, controlled, offensive zone entries so that seems to go against 
any advanced stats person would say, I can't believe that that number goes down and their success goes up, right? It doesn't make sense, but it makes sense to me because that's how they want to play. They want to play a deliberate structured defensive game and they don't, they don't want one of the defensemen to be out of position by rushing the puck up and even gaining the zone. So they, they, that was really reduced. And I don't know if you, if you go back and look back at the tape, you'll, you will not see Kulak carrying the puck into the offensive zone. Petrie stopped doing it. Everybody stopped doing it. It's interesting because one of the other things that stood out to me during that playoffs was that the refs didn't really call those cross checks that they called during the season. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And and that sort of benefited Montreal. It also benefited um, Islanders, I think. And, and it really, yeah. you know, it, it, it sort of creates that, you know, playoff hockey momentum. But, but it's interesting and, and it's, it's good to hear that, that you can see a future where, where maybe Romanov gets more into the team and gets a, like more usage, especially with someone like uh, Kulak, as you mentioned. But, but uh, also um, going forward, what are your expectations on the defense this year? I I think because of the six of the success they had in the uh, the playoffs, they they are uh, it gives them credence to that structure and that system. So you're just going to see a double down on that. There, there's no reason for them to put Norlander in the first you know first pairing and say go be our next uh, Romanov or sorry. Um, Yossi, uh, Yossi, uh, what's Roman Yossi, Roman Yossi, you know, like they're just not going to experiment with that until that player can prove whether it's Romanov or Norlander that he can do that in a smaller bubble on the, on the last pairing. So you're going to see that Savard is just going to slot in to do what, uh, Weber does. And you're going to see the exact same thing. What you're going to see hopefully change is the power play and the penalty kill. And, and, Obviously, with Wiedemann, if he sticks, uh, he gets a chance to to maybe run that power play and, and maybe, obviously, Petrie would probably run the other. But whereabouts, like, we, we got the additions of Wiedemann, which we're not really sure about what we'll come to, but he's KHL Defender of the Year, which mostly usually means he, he scores a lot on the power play or, or assists a lot on the power play. Yeah. But then you also have uh, Samuniku that, that was signed to, to a very favorable deal the other day. Um, and then uh, you have Guli pressing for time. They're obviously not going to do anything with Romanov. They're going to keep him up. You got Norlinder going back to Sweden. I'm sure of that. So, 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 but there is this Samuniku addition and, and Wiedemann that is the unknown that can, can you take anything away from those games that you have seen? What they can, well, Nico hasn't played, but, but, Wiedemann, at least. Yeah, I, I just think that uh, Bergevin is doubling down on that bottom end defenseman that could slot into the need that they have, which is the power play, right? So it was clear last year that, you know, going out to get uh, Gustafsson and, uh, and now signing uh, Niku and Weidman, it's clear that he's just collecting defensemen and hoping that one of them can achieve uh, success on, on there for sure. Yeah. It's the, the power play is, I mean, the, the uh, special teams were, were terrible last year. I mean, they were, they just did not produce enough. And uh, that could easily, if they just have an average 
five on five team and they can bring up the special teams, then you they're going to fight for a spot for sure. Yeah, and, and we also see like Boston went out and got a little bit bigger. Other teams has gone out and gotten a little bit bigger. Um, there's also the fact that you won't play the Canucks nine times. You won't play. I mean, there were really interesting matchup last year where it was a little bit of a rock, paper, scissors going on. And, and now playing all other teams, all 32 teams in the league, you're not going to have that kind of advantage anymore. So, so it will be interesting to to see what, what goes on down the line. Um, obviously, from Kenya, you know, the time difference is, is absolutely atrocious. And there's not many early games for, for Montreal fans in, in, in this side of the world. But <clears throat> how is it being a fan on the opposite end of the world? Yeah, the, the league just uh, started, right? So um, the good news is, in the mornings are pretty quiet here, right? Because uh, uh, it's you know, taking America. the snakes out of the house kind yeah, of thing. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Take the snakes out. Make sure the monkeys haven't broken into your house. But uh, yeah, I mean, North America hasn't woken up yet. So uh, so I'll, I'll be watching my games early. I'll be waking up and watching them probably seven or after I drop the kids off to school and uh, having a coffee and, and doing it that way. And it, it, one of the things is I had... Um, um, we had the uh, microstats. I had uh, a student from McGill tracking the microstats for the Habs, right, last year, and he won't be doing that this year. So, because um, he's moved on to bigger and better things, so I've got a little bit of a void in some of the stats I did last year. All right, guys, and so I'm hear wondering... this. Listen to this. <laughs> Jason <laughs> needs help. Make sure to yeah. to to. If you're interested in this, you, I don't think you can get a better teacher than, than Jason. He's patient <laughs> and and he's like seven hours ahead of you, so he will not bother you because you. There like you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, any stats collectors out there um, for sure. I mean, I'm really interested. I've been in this realm for a little while now, and you know, I love the micro stats. I love the advanced stats. Um, you, you saw the the interview with Ducharme, and he kind of revealed that they they collect five or six stats. And uh, I mean, if you know anything about advanced stats and how teams do things they collect a lot of information and of course they collect their own, they get information from uh, smart logic and all these other different areas, but they also do in-house and because they want to gear it towards what their, what their performance measurements are, right? They don't want to measure something that they don't believe is successful. So they want to measure something that makes their team successful. So clearly these five stats or six stats that Ducharme was talking about are really important to the team. And in that vein, I was trying to think of before the season starts, I might try to collect two or three of my own microstats that go beyond what the, uh, you know, uh, what is kind of like the standard for um, the stats community. You know, like there, there, there's a definition for um, controlled entry and, and zone denial. And, and so it, it, there's a lot of gray area there. And I'm sure the team's do their stats in such a way that they reduce that gray area, right? So maybe if they if they uh, value killing a play, so they have to define what killing a play is and where in the where in the on the ice that they will they will define that, right? Um, and so, how much value do you give to the players that one player or multiple players that were responsible for that play kill, right? I think that's one of the things that they do track because they said that uh, Lekkanen was was high on on the ranking uh, and a couple other defensemen. So we also know that uh, yeah, Romanov I, I was called the assassin for killing plays. So uh... yeah, yeah. 
So, and you know, and like uh, first pass, uh, you know, people talk about a defenseman first pass, but it's more than just a first pass. Is it an actual zone exit? Uh, you know, did it result in a turnover? Like, so I think I might try to make up some of my own this year. We'll see how it goes. So, so please help Jason out. We're interested in, in, in this. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not a good stats man. Uh, so, so I can't help out with that. I'll do the podcast and we'll talk about it though. And we'll give you credit on the podcast. We'll even invite you if you need to. So, so uh, no, but, but it's really interesting. I know I, I did an interview a couple of years ago with um, one of the best coaches in Sweden and, and one of his players. And he was taken out after a game and said, you know, you're the center of the line of the first line. You played 22 minutes last night. You had the puck on your stick seven seconds. That's not what we're paying you for. We're paying you to carry the puck. We're paying you, playing you, paying you to play the puck. And and I think sometimes, even with Corsi and, and all the other stuff that, that we have to sort of gravitate into, you know, statistical analysis, you, you need to figure out some of these basic stats is kind of important as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and the ultimate stat is important too like winning and scoring goals and uh it really is it's such a difficult game to you know come to the conclusion of who on the ice made it happen right uh it's not it's, like it's, baseball it's where it's one one or or, or uh, it's a pitcher versus the 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 batter or or tennis yeah it's definitely one one where you can have the unforced errors and, and all that stuff this is like you, you there are five guys that switching on the fly as well so you know you might miss something because the camera cat didn't catch it yeah and i think there's like a magic to hockey it's it's not like other sports there's something there you know and i don't want to sound like old school but i mean i think coaches really do push buttons and 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 make the right play you know they're they're trying to make the magic happen right and you know I look back at the the game they beat Toronto when um, Gilchenyuk gave the puck away in overtime. Do you oh, remember yeah, that, yeah. that one? Well, uh, of course like, I remember that. Cole Caulfield, come on. Nick Suzuki, yeah. again. <laughs> yeah. So who, who do you give credit for, for that, all that there? Like that whole sequence, do you give credit to the puck pressure? Do you give credit to Cole Caulfield scoring the goal? Like there are so many layers in that play that – I would argue you can bring it back to the beginning of the game, whereas Gilchenyuk was having a good game, right? He was full of confidence because he had, I think he had two points or something. He was doing something there and he, he, his confidence was brimming, right? So the coach had confidence in him and enough to put him in overtime. And his maybe overconfidence made him make that high-risk play, which resulted in the goal. All that to say is that there's so many pieces in the game that are hard to, to put fun. together if yeah. he had a bad game if Golchanik had a bad game there's no way he would be out there in overtime right <laughs> but then it's you also have funny the, how hockey gods work yeah and then you have the other thing when when Kerry Price actually stands on his head and he sh- makes five saves that he should never ever do again yeah 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 so so th- there's all that um, it's been a pleasure Jason it's always great to <laughs> speak with you and and uh especially on a time like this when it's dark at your place and, and it's still light at mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a pleasure, uh, Patrick. I love being on the podcast. Yeah. 
Make sure to follow Jason Paul at, at Babe Intel. Now, you, with, with added bonus, you might be able to get some cheetah photos or, or, or uh, monkey photos. Thank you guys for listening. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on with me.